I invite you to please turn in your copy of Scripture to our text for this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. There we read, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. As we've noted throughout our series in the book of Hebrews, the letter was written to a fearful, unsure uh, church, a church that was undergoing persecution and rejection by their uh, Jewish friends and family. And this was causing uh, these early Christians to doubt and to be tempted to turn away from Christ. So the Holy Spirit inspired the author of Hebrews to write in order to give confidence to the Hebrews and to us this morning. To give them confidence not to turn away from Christ because it is in Christ alone that forgiveness and salvation is found. He alone is the source of forgiveness and salvation. He wrote to give them confidence and assurance and boldness. And you know how that feels here Sunday mornings on the Lord's Day, as we did this morning, as we confessed our sins and how they were heavy upon us confessing them corporately, privately, the burden of them, and then hearing the assurance of pardon ringing out from the elder that God has surely forgiven our sin. And this is the assurance that the letter of Hebrews gives to this early church and to us this morning, that it is in Christ alone that forgiveness is found and assurance is found. And the Holy Spirit does this grants this assurance through the inspired author by showing the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Christ's is a priesthood that is superior to the Levitical one because he alone provides atonement and access to God through the sacrifice of himself, not through the sacrifice of animals, but through the sacrifice of himself. And so the inspired author, writing 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does this first by showing the weakness of the Levitical priesthood. He wants to give them and us confidence in Christ by first showing the weakness of the Levitical priesthood. And as we look at our three points this morning, the first one being Christ makes us perfect, I want you to note that the first point is much longer than the second and third point, in case you get uh, nervous about these kinds of things. So let us look at verse uh, 11 as we consider how Christ makes us perfect. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Now, we see there in verse 11, the word perfection, it refers to qualification or consecration for access into the presence of God, being allowed into the presence of God. We know that the Lord is holy, that he is perfectly sinless, and in order for anyone to be able to stand in his presence, that person needs to have the same holiness and the same perfection as him. We must be holy even as he is holy. It's what we read in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 through 2. In that book of holiness, the Lord says to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So the picture we have here, uh, the need for holiness and cleansing, is given so clearly in Leviticus chapter 16 uh, on the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. And before he was able to do that, before he was allowed to do that, he had to first be cleansed himself. And he had to go through a long process to where he first atoned for his own sin. He was cleansed, and, then, and only then he could enter into uh, the presence of God. And we know that even this cleansing, it was only external, and it was ineffective because it had to be repeated over and over, year after year. We see that even on the Day of Atonement, there was evidence of the inherent weakness of the priesthood, of the Older Covenant Levitical priesthood. There was inherent, evident weakness that was made evident to Israel and that is evident to us as we read the Older Covenant. We know that the Older Covenant priests were weak. They were inferior because they could not cleanse the people perfectly. See, they couldn't grant the people the lasting perfection that was required, again, to enter into God's presence, into a holy God's presence. We read about their weakness in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, 1 through 4, actually. There we read, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would 
no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The writer of Hebrews, there in chapter 10, is is showing that the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow. It was only a dim preview of the good things that were still to come. They weren't the good things themselves. He's saying that the sacrifices under that system were repeated over and over, again and again, year after year. But even though they were repeated, they were never able to provide the perfect cleansing for those who came to worship God. Because, he says, if they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. But they didn't stop. The worshipers had to continue to offer those sacrifices in order for their guilt to be assuaged. And so, loved ones, what needed to happen? What needed to happen, we read in Hebrews, is a new priesthood needed to happen, a superior priesthood to that of the Levitical order. This is implied in Psalm 110, verse 4, our Psalm of the Month, and also a psalm that we read uh, last week as well. Psalm 110, verse 4, the new priesthood is promised. There we read, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What we read here in Psalm 110 verse 4 is a prophecy. It's a prophecy written hundreds of years after the establishment of the Levitical priesthood that a priest from a different order would need to come in order to get the job done, the job that the Levitical priests were unable to accomplish. He, this priest from a different order, would need to be superior to the Levitical order. And so the prophecy we read is given through King David that the superior priest would come from a superior priesthood. Whose priesthood? The priesthood of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek, who we see appears in Genesis chapter 14, as he encounters Abram uh, after Abram's uh, victory in battle. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, we read about the account. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. As we saw last Lord's Day, the inspired author of Hebrews uses this account from Genesis chapter 14 to show Melchizedek's superiority over Abram and therefore over the Levitical priesthood. He points out the fact that Abram was blessed by Melchizedek. And then Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe. So the writer of Hebrews says, you know, in that relationship, who is superior? Clearly, Melchizedek is the one who is superior. And so that means, he says, covenantally speaking, Melchizedek is superior even to Abram's descendants, even to the Levites. And see, that's why 
God spoke through David of a superior priest. A superior priest who would come not from the line of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi, but one that would come from an entirely different order altogether, a superior order, the order of Melchizedek. See, the Levites were unable to make the people perfect. They were unable to make the people holy and acceptable to God. But the superior priest, the Lord Jesus, from the order of Melchizedek, was able to. He did make his people perfect. And this morning, you may not feel perfect. And maybe you'll have, you all have uh, family members and friends who will readily testify to the fact that you and I are not perfect. But the perfection that the writer is speaking about here is not the kind of perfection that we might think about. But he is speaking about a definitive holiness, a definitive sanctification that we, by faith in Christ, have been set apart. We have been declared holy. There is still a progressive sanctification that is taking place in each of our lives as by the word and the spirit we are being made to, be, to grow in Christ's likeness. And that is a lifelong process. But we have been set apart, declared holy. You and I are holy in Christ. We read about this declaration in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, loved ones, what we see is that there has been a change in the priesthood because the Levitical one was weak, was inferior, it was unable to bring about the perfection and the holiness that God requires and so, God decreed that there would be a priest from a different order, a superior order, the order of Melchizedek. And we see there in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 7, our passage for this morning, that there's a further implication of this change. There's been a change in the priesthood, and that has brought about some very important ramifications for the way that God deals with his people. Look at verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood from the Levitical to that of Melchizedek, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. There's a change in the law as well. See, the writer is saying that when the change in priesthood occurred with Christ, there also came a change in the law. And the change he's talking about is referring to a change in the ceremonial and the civil laws that God gave to Israel in the older covenants. New priesthood, new laws. And speaking specifically about fulfillment now. Fulfillment. The ceremonial laws of the older covenant were those laws of Israel that dealt with the people's worship of God. They regulated how God was to be worshipped in the tabernacle and in the temple. Um, and then we know that Israel, as a people of God, as a holy nation, 
also had civil laws that God gave them, laws that dealt with uh, relationships among the people, laws that uh, gave penalties uh, when sin, sins took place, penalties for injustice, for sin. And so the writer of Hebrews is pointing out that now that the priest promised through David and Psalm 110 has come, and he's a priest from a different order, a superior one, there has also been a change in the law. And the change, again, is specifically one of fulfillment. See, what's changed, loved ones, in the ceremonial laws? What's changed? We know that what's changed is that Christ offered himself, that he didn't offer the blood of bulls and goats, but he, as our great high priest, offered himself the final perfect sacrifice. And so, because of that, the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws of the older covenant have been fulfilled. He is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundations of the earth. He is the perfect one, the one that all of the older covenant sacrifices merely pointed to. And with his final sacrifice, those ceremonial laws have been fulfilled. And even the civil laws of Israel have changed. Israel's civil laws, as we said, regulated the nation, regulated God's people, their day-to-day routines and their day-to-day lives. Uh, and, And it regulated God's people by listing the penalties for disobedience. And yet when you read the Older Covenant, we know that even these penalties were but shadows of the danger of turning away from Christ. There were earthly penalties that were teaching Israel of the danger of rejecting God's promised Messiah. But see, loved ones, now the new priesthood, with the the fulfillment of, of God's promises in Christ, these laws have changed. There has been a fulfillment because the priesthood has changed. The Westminster Confession of Faith clearly explains this to us in chapter 19. I want to read uh, sections 3, 4, and 5. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a a confession that summarizes what we believe uh, the Bible teaches. And there in chapter 19, it deals with the law of God. We read in section 3, In addition to this law, commonly called the moral law, God was pleased to give the people of Israel, as the church under age, ceremonial laws, which contained several typological ordinances. These ordinances consisted partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly of various instructions of moral duties. All these Ceremonial laws are now abrogated, repealed, done away with under the New Testament, under the New Covenant. They have been fulfilled. Section 4 continues and says, To the people of Israel, as a civil entity, as a holy nation, he also gave various judicial laws, which expired at the time, of their, uh, at the time that their state expired. Therefore, these judicial laws place no obligation upon anyone now, except as they embody general principles 
of justice. So we may ask, that explains the ceremonial, that explains the civil. What about the moral? What about the moral laws of the older covenant? Have those changed? We read in section 5, the moral law binds all people at all times to obedience, both those who are justified and those who are not. The obligation to obey the moral law is not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God the Creator, who gave it. In the Gospel, Christ in no way dissolves this obligation, but greatly strengthened it. See, the Westminster Confession of Faith, there in chapter 19, is teaching us that there are principles that we can learn as Christians from the ceremonial laws, from the civil laws that were given to Israel in the older covenant. But those laws have changed. They've been fulfilled in Christ. That's what Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12 is getting at. New priesthood, new laws. This has great implications for us as Christians, for our theonomic friends who believe that the civil laws of Israel ought to continue to be exactly matched in form and intensity by the modern state punishments, hey, there has been a change, the writer of Hebrews says. And for our dispensationalist friends who believe in a future millennium, a future 1,000 literal years where the temple is going to be rebuilt and the animal sacrifices are going to be reinstituted, there has been a change. Even the author of Hebrews wouldn't be able to comprehend such thinking in what he is writing in his epistle. He would say, and he says so clearly throughout the epistle, that would be regress, not progress. See, in light of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, why would you want to reinstitute an inferior system, a system that has been fulfilled and that has passed. And you even think about the audience that the inspired author to the Hebrews is writing to. That there, as he's writing in Jerusalem, the temple is still standing. The priesthood is still there, the Levitical one. The animal sacrifices are still going on. And if he believed, and if that system was still in place, he would encourage the Christians to continue to go to the temple and participate in those sacrifices. But he doesn't because he says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that has been fulfilled. It has passed. What the inspired author of Hebrews is helping his readers understand, and the Holy Spirit is teaching us through the word this morning, is that there has been a covenant shift. We've moved the loved ones from promise to fulfillment, from type to reality. And it's it's a significant change. We might say it's a tectonic shift. Major difference. And especially if you think about the first century audience that the writer is speaking to. For Jews who were brought up in the system of, of Judaism, of sacrifices and those civil laws, it was a part of their bloodstream. It was inherent in their catechism. This is what they knew. This is the system that they were so tempted to return to. 
was a major change. And some of them struggled to make the change. You read in Acts chapter 6 that when Stephen was prosecuted for his preaching, that he was prosecuted according to the Mosaic law. That the Jewish religious leaders rejected Christ, and because of their rejection of Christ, see, they failed to see the fulfillment, the change, the shift. And we read even of Peter, the Apostle Peter himself, who struggled to understand this, this new reality. You read in Acts chapter 10 about his wrestling with, with this change and this fulfillment. In Acts chapter 10, we read about the vision that he saw. The next day, beginning at verse 9, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And we read there that Peter, as a result of this vision in verse 17, was inwardly perplexed. He was confused. See, Peter, though he was living at that moment in the new covenant age, he was still thinking in the older covenant mindset. And he was unwilling to break those old covenant ceremonial laws that pro prohibited the eating of unclean animals. Even Peter struggled to see the covenant shift, the new age of fulfillment. See, friends, the older covenants, with all of its ceremonial and civil laws, we need to understand this morning was not bad or wrong, but it had a purpose, and it served its purpose. The Older Covenant's purpose was to point to Christ in types, in shadows, in pictures. God gave Israel things that pointed to Christ and to his work of redemption. Those ceremonial laws served to help Israel understand the gravity of sin, but also to see God's provision of propitiation of a blood sacrifice. The civil laws served to help them understand the danger of God's wrath for disobedience. And Israel was then to look through that type, that shadow, that picture, to the reality that was to come. One theologian explains it this way. He says, in pictorial form, in picture form, God was saying to Israel, look at my provisions for you. This is how I redeem you and bring you to my presence. But look again, and you will see that it is all an earthly symbol of something better. Don't rely on what you see as if it were the end, the reality. Trust me to save you fully when I accomplish my plans. So when Christ, the reality came, those types and shadows needed to be put away.
to continue to hold on to them is not to embrace the full reality that we live in now by faith in Christ. So loved ones, you and I can now draw near to God. See, not through types and shadows, not through an inferior priesthood, but in full assurance of faith that we have been made perfect, holy, consecrated, not by a Levitical order, but by our great high priest, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews continues by showing how Christ's priesthood is more superior now because of the eternal life that Jesus gives by his uh, superior priesthood. We read in verses 13 through 17 of Hebrews chapter 7. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. You see here that the inspired author is making the case that Jesus is a priest, even though he's not from the tribe of Levi. You know, one of the objections that the Hebrew Christians faced from their Jewish family and friends was uh, Jesus' qualifications for uh, high priest. And the objections might have sounded something like this. You know, how, how can you trust in Jesus' atonement for your sins when he's not a descendant of the tribe of Levi? He's not qualified to atone for your sins because he's not a priest according to the law of Moses. So the inspired author, he, he takes this objection and he readily acknowledges it and he counters by pointing to Christ's appointment as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. See, the Levitical priesthood was unable to bring about the perfection that was needed for God's people and so the inspired author points to the fact that God decreed from eternity that there would be a different priesthood that would bring about that perfection. And so he says, you know, Jesus' priesthood, not being from the tribe of Levi, it's not a weakness, it's a strength. As it reveals Jesus is part of an eternal priesthood, a better priesthood, a superior priesthood, one that brings the perfection required by a holy God, the holy God that says you are to be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And so it's to this eternal nature of Christ's priesthood that the author again draws our attention. If you recall last week in reading from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, the author of Hebrews points to the fact that Melchizedek's genealogy, his family tree isn't recorded in Scripture. The writer of Hebrews says, you know, this is purposely done by the Holy Spirit. It's to make it seem like Melchizedek is this eternal priest that comes from eternity to eternity. His birth isn't recorded. His death isn't recorded. Even though he's a real man, it's kind of made to seem like he is this, this eternal priest. It is to typify 
the greater priest who would come from his line, the eternal Christ. In the same way, the writer says, Jesus, who is from the order of Melchizedek, whom Melchizedek resembles, is our high priest by the power of an indestructible life, by the power of an eternal life. But you might say, even as the writer of Hebrews says that in verse 16, well, Jesus did die. He did die. We know he did. So Good Friday is all about. We know about the spear that went into his side. We know about the Roman soldier who, looking up at the cross, said, this man is dead. I'm not going to break his legs, even though I could. There was testimony after testimony of Jesus' death. How is it then that the writer of Hebrews says that he is and a priest with an indestructible life. What is he talking about? The writer of Hebrews is pointing us to the fact that Jesus was raised to newness of life. He was raised never to die again. That death could not conquer him. He conquered it. He's pointing to the fact that in Jesus, in his resurrection, Psalm 16 was fulfilled, that God did not let his Holy One, see decay. And the Apostle Peter, using Psalm 16, as he's preaching to that crowd at Pentecost, the Apostle Peter declares that God raised Jesus up, loosing, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Beloved ones, the writer here is saying, we know Jesus is not from the Levitical priestly order. We know that, and that's great. Because he is of a superior order, an eternal one, and because he is eternal, he ever lives to make intercession for us. He remains our great high priest even now in heaven. He is the one who has indestructible life, and so therefore he is the only one that can give indestructible life. Levitical priests did not have indestructible lives. They died. Their remains are still somewhere in Israel. Perhaps have decayed by now. But Jesus was raised. His body was not in the tomb. He was raised. His life is indestructible and therefore he is the one and the only one who can grant indestructible life. He has it. He gives it. John chapter 10, verse 10, the Lord Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Lord Jesus here saying that I came that they may have life, not just biological life, breathing life, eating in this world kind of life, but abundant life. Abundant life that starts here with regeneration and abundant life that proceeds through eternity. Life that Jesus gives, loved ones, is not just life in the here and now, but it is eternal life. Our indestructible priests, priest gives us indestructible life. And because of this, he gives us a better hope as we see in verses 18 through 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. 
But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. When we think about the idea of hope, we often equate it with uh, wishful thinking. But the Bible's definition of hope is certain. It is certain hope that is grounded in certainty. And so our redemption and the promise of eternal life is not grounded in wishful thinking, loved ones, but it is grounded in Christ's once-for-all ministry, a ministry that is accomplished, a ministry that is even now being applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Scripture assures us that this hope, this certain hope, does not disappoint, put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for giving us a great high priest who grants us access to fellowship with the very triune God of heaven. We thank you that through him we are cleansed and made righteous, holy and acceptable to you. Be with us now, we pray, as you send us into the world. Grant us faith and boldness and your protection and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.